Today's scripture reading is from Joshua 13, 1 through 7. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and there remains yet very much land to possess. This is the land that yet remains, all the regions of the Philistines and all those of the Geshurites, from the Shihor, which is east of Egypt, northward to the boundary of Ekron. It is counted as Canaanite. There are five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron, and those of, of the Avim. In the south, all the land of the Canaanites, and the Miara, that belongs to the Sidonians, to Aphek, to the boundary of the Amorites, and the land of the Gebelites, and all Lebanon, toward the sunrise, from Baal Gad, below Mount Hermon, to Lebo Hamath. All the inhabitants of the hill country, from Lebanon to Misraphath Mayim, even all the Sidonians, I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel. Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance, as I have commanded you. Now, therefore, divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and half the tribe of Manasseh. This is God's word. Well, we're in Joshua chapter 13. We're going to go through the whole chapter today. By way of review, with the closure of uh, the northern campaign, that was basically Joshua 1 through 11, chapter 13 begins with, um, well, begins the third major section of the book of Joshua, right before the uh, last section of Joshua, which is basically Joshua's farewell. And this section lasts all the way through chapter 21. And it's the section in which there is the division of the land that has been conquered thus far. And so you have uh, kind of the the bloody, brutal warfare section uh, closing. And you enter a new section where they're dividing the spoils of the war that they fought. And it's in these passages, quite frankly, similar to last week, uh, where you had a list uh, of kings that were conquered, that you will begin to feel... Your eyelids grow a little heavy, your ears a little dull, your butts a little numb, and start thinking that watching paint dry and trees grow might be more alluring or attractive than listening to 2,500-year-old land surveys is pretty much what you're going to see. I mean, one of those, one chapter, chapter 12, a list is tolerable, but eight chapters, eight chapters of lists and land surveys might prove a little more uh, difficult. And so as we approach this section of Scripture, I I want all of us, and I'll remind us to take a a particular mentality with it. And that is, it's essential that as you approach this Scripture or, or these passages, you need to put yourself, kind of take yourself out of the mind of America 2011 and all the things that kind of impact the way you think and the way you behave and all those things that might be attractive or not to you, and put yourself into the mind and the attitude of an Israelite 2,500 years ago at this time. An Israelite whose father's 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 father has been waiting for this day. This day was promised centuries earlier. And so in our culture of, of immediacy, quite frankly, our culture where there's very few things that are sacred anymore, There are very few things that are worth waiting for simply because there are very few things you have to wait for in this culture. 
Because of that, um, there are a few things that probably could compare in our world today with what this Israelite or a lot of these Israelites were experiencing and thinking. Perhaps the only thing close might be uh, if you're young or old for that matter, waiting for graduation from high school or even college or maybe waiting for retirement uh, or maybe waiting for, for marriage. You know, that, that day that came and you'd been waiting a long time for to celebrate, it's close, but I, I don't think it even can compare with this. This is, this is Israel's awaited, long-awaited, centuries-awaited inheritance. And through the details of this passage, you're going you're gonna to see the survey of all these things, and it is going to be easily, or you'll be tempted to be bored by it. But know that an Israelite, in his day, they were analyzing every single word that was spoken. They were listening to every detail that described the gift that God was giving them. And it reminded me of uh, when, I was, when we first brought our first son home, Fisher. First of all, I was scared to death because there wasn't a nurse there. And we kind of laid him down in the you know, bassinet and went, crap, now what? You know, here we have this baby. But the thing about it is, it, it, at that point, he didn't have to do anything. And, and it was amazing to me. And every little ear and, and eyelash and finger and toe and, and every little coo that he might have made. And, and it's been the same as he's gotten older. And all of our children, I knew every detail and, and was blown away by every detail and thankful for every little detail. Excited and appreciative. And this is the same way I think that, that they are listening to this inheritance, this gift that's been given to them as they listen to every river Every mountain, every hill, every city, every little detail that's theirs, individually, this gift, say, look, this is yours, and describing it, and they're loving it and, and valuing it because it mattered to them. The details sometimes of God's blessing to us really do matter. What I mean is sometimes we look at this huge, you know, forest, if you will, or even the large tree, and forget the small little things that are beautiful and the small little details that are just as much of a blessing. And so they're listening to every word. So after 500 years, give or take, God's promise to his people of land that he had promised to Abraham and promised again to Isaac and again to Jacob and to his sons and to Moses unfolds here. And so he records in these eight chapters the dividing of the land and dispersing it among these 12 tribes. And so we understand history. The 12 tribes are descended from the 12 sons of Jacob, who is the grandson of Abraham. And we will see this, this beautiful breakdown. And so the next eight chapters break down basically each tribe in order. So we'll begin, or we'll continue from what we read, and we'll review that and continue in verse 8 as it kind of summarizes what happens and then later goes into very much detail of the three tribes that we'll read today. In verse 8 it says this, with the other half of the tribe of Manasseh, the Reubenites and the Gadites received their inheritance, which Moses gave them beyond the Jordan eastward, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them from the Aror. Now, before I continue, put that map up. You'll see what he's going to describe today is the eastern side of the tribe. So this is the uh, different tribes that exist in Israel, and we're going to just talk about Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben today on the eastern side of the Jordan. They were actually uh, 
first given before they came across the Jordan, right before, and now they're re-describing it. And you'll see where each tribe uh, ends up, um, minus the Levites, who uh, have a unique blessing that they receive. So this is beyond the Jordan eastward, in verse 9. From Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and the city which is in the middle of the valley, and all the tableland of Medeba, as far as Dibon, and all the cities of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, as far as the boundary of the Ammonites, and Gilead, and the region of the Geshurites, and the Maacathites, and all Mount Hermon, and all Bashan to Salika, and the kingdom, all the kingdom of Og in Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth and in Adrei, he alone was left at the remnant of the Rephaim. These Moses had struck and driven out, and yet the people of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites, Geshurites or the Maacathites. But Geshur and Maacath dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. To the tribe of Levi alone, Moses gave no inheritance. The offerings by fire to the Lord God of Israel are their inheritance, as he said to him. So, reviewing the, the whole first section of that passage, uh, the Lord begins by coming to Joshua, and he comes to him and says that he is getting old. Or a very nice way of saying it, you are advanced in years. Some translations say you are stricken in years. Um, basically, if you think about this, Joshua is having to report this because it was probably a private conversation. So he's coming up to his, uh, whoever his tribe is like, yeah, God said, I'm old. Um, so he says, you're old, and we, uh, we know that Joshua actually dies at about 110. So he probably is about 100 at this point, which means that during the battles, he was 90. Okay, so you got a 90-year-old general battling. And a sidebar here, I think, is to recognize that when you get old, however old is to you, when you get old, that doesn't necessarily mean God is done with you. I say that because Moses, Joshua, and many of the, the Old Testament leaders were very old when they began their ministry. Moses was 80. He was 40 years in Egypt, 40 years shepherding, and God said, now it's time to use you. So age is somewhat irrelevant when God comes and calls and tells you to do something. And I, I think sometimes as Christians, particularly older Christians, and forgive me if this is really hitting you, you kind of look back at, okay, well, I had my Christian time. My mission time was done, and now I'm in like retirement, even spiritually retired. That's not... God's plan, necessarily, for you. But, the fact is, God comes and tells Joshua that his mission's done. So let's make sure that happens before we stop, right? He comes and says, there's a lot of land to take, and you are too old to take it. I don't think Joshua thinks he's too old. Moses died older than this, and he, it said that he was full of life. That's when he first started. So, he comes and says, it's time there are more lands. You're too old to do it. And so what we see here is a transition, a shift in leadership, where Israel is fighting as a community, and now they're going to be fighting as, as individual tribes, as smaller little armies. And they're going to be fighting for themselves. The, the umbilical cord, if you will, that was attached, attached them all together is now going to be cut. And the Lord, though, promises, he says, I will continue to fight and lead each individual tribe as they fight their own little unique battles to fully occupy the sections that I give them. Now, still led by God then, 
They would have these smaller missions, their own unique parts of the land, but they have the same mission to begin with. They're all working on the same idea of conquest that God had promised to begin with. And it reminded me a little bit in Galatians 6, when Paul talks about loads and burdens of the community helping one another, and yet individuals having their own things to work out. And you may have read it before, I think it's Galatians 6.2, it says, bear one another's burdens. It's a great thing. The community comes together. Bear the burdens of one another. And he continues and says, and so fulfill the law of Christ. It is the very thing that is loving. And verse 3 says, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But will each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. So you have this difference between load and burdens, and there comes a time when the whole community can't battle together. The truth is there are a lot of battles that you have to fight individually that really no one can help you, either as a family, as an individual, that the church or the larger group can't battle for you. Then there are the larger ones that as a community we're supposed to fight together. But we have this transition where he's like, all right, it's time for you guys to go on your own now. All of Israel is not going to fight with you. And this has got to be, if you think about it, a difficult transition, I would think, for Joshua because he's no longer needed. At least it's got to feel like that. He's no longer needed, at least in the same way. He has a change in leadership, kind of like a father watching his his daughter or son begin their own family. He's going to be the father still, but not really. It's it's a change. It's It's a shift. And I wonder if Joshua is a little scared. Knowing the past of these people, knowing how easily they're swayed, knowing how weak maybe they, they are, knowing how mistakes he'd made himself. He's probably concerned about how well they're going to do. And there isn't a lot of time to reteach them the important things. Okay, guys, as you go on your own, remember these ten steps to being a successful warrior. He has already done all his teaching. He has taught them everything he could, basically in, in well over seven years, but particularly in, in chapters 1 through 11, over seven years. And what you see is chapter 1 through 11 takes about seven years, and chapter 13 through 21 probably takes a couple days. So it just divides the land, sets the lots, and they go. And it's the final pause between the chapters 23 and 24 where he gives two farewell speeches, speeches. and Even if he had the time, though, which he doesn't, I wonder what he would teach them. Strategy, fighting, skills, certain things about each parts of the land. The truth is, as I said, he has already taught everything that he's going to teach them simply by what he's done. He's been a successful leader, a successful father, because his faithfulness, not because of his skill Because of his strength and courage to hold God's word, not because he was really brave and battling the Canaanites. For us, um, particularly for our church and even today, new leaders are going to come and new leaders should come and new leaders should arise where it gets to a point where the leader isn't the one leading up front the most or burdening the most, where it's released and entrusted to faithful men to lead. People don't do that if they're control freaks or idolatrous of their position. Joshua is not. 
Joshua doesn't argue with God. Joshua doesn't say, hey, look, you know, you, I was the man, the only faithful one in the wilderness. Remember, God, I got lots of energy still. Dude, you're old. I'm not old. Come on. He doesn't argue. He releases. He doesn't hold on tight to it. He releases it. And so his role now is to entrust what he knows to faithful men to lead the next generation, to leave a legacy for his family and for all of Israel. Because the next generation is going to have different battles than he fought. He's going to die within 10 years. They're going to continue to battle for many years. And though Joshua cannot pass on the perfect fighting skills for every little battle they might fight that will work, because what works in one era might not work in another. We saw the diversity of battles. The only real thing he can pass on to the next generation is his faithfulness to God. Think about that. If you're a father, there's lots of things you can teach your sons and your daughters about being a man or being a woman or looking for a husband or looking for a wife. There's lots of things you can teach them. But the one thing that's most important for them to see, not to hear, although it's important to hear it, for them to see is your faithfulness. Faithfulness when you make a mistake. Faithfulness when things are difficult. Faithfulness when things are prosperous. Your faithfulness. That will teach infinitely more than any list of skills or fighting abilities you might be able to give them. Do your children, do your friends, do your neighbors, whoever is quote, following you at this point, do they see your faithfulness as you suffer, as you prosper, whatever it is. And I think it's hard for people to release oftentimes and let people go, at least let the next generation of leaders come up, because they know that that doesn't, just because you get the label of leader, just because you get the label of husband, father, wife, mom, boss, whatever it is, pastor, doesn't mean that you will always prove faithful. We know human nature. We know our own. And we're like, I'm afraid to release you because I know that you will probably screw up. And it doesn't take long for them to prove that that's the case. Uh, It's hard for a, I can imagine letting my kids go. You know, my daughter, she probably won't, won't be married until she's like 35 because that's just the way it's going to happen. But my boys, they'll go out. I mean, you think about that. With daughters, it's just like no one's going to ever love her like I do, period. I'm pretty sure of that. My sons, they better not screw up. I'll just, you know, take it to them. But the reality is they will go out, and it's hard for a parent to watch that, I think. I haven't had, I'm sure parents have had that experience. But it's difficult to me even imagine that because I'm like... I want to be there to like, protect it all and not let you screw up and like, make sure you're faithful, like I can keep them faithful now even. Right? But what happens is, uh, as the possession of the east is described, it's not long, you see in verse 13, where it says they didn't fully drive out certain peoples. And I say it's the first time because you will see it as a pattern that comes up as the lands are divided. But they didn't drive these people out. They got all this, got all this, but they didn't drive those people out. Perhaps, and I don't know what it is, we'll talk about this in a future sermon about boundaries and things like that, but it's possible that the receipt of their inheritance, of the position, of the gift, 
the joy of just getting you know, material blessing and getting successful, getting their home, getting all these things, has maybe made them a little more comfortable, a little less vigilant. And though that they were faithful in, in the crisis of war, when things were you know, not certain what was going to happen, when there was a sense of urgency, when the battle was raging and right in front of them, their obedience is threatened when they are prosperous and at peace. Think about that. Their obedience and their faithfulness becomes threatened when everything is okay. Sound like anyone you know. For me, when the battle's raging, I'm a warrior. Let's fight. Let's go. You know, battles, let's, you know, name of Jesus, proclaim, let's go. And then when things are calm, prosperous, going well, how many people have you met who said, why do I need Jesus? Look at my life. Or you yourself, how likely are you to pray to, to plead to God for His mercy and grace when you don't really feel like you practically need it in the moment. This is what happens to them. And what they don't realize, and maybe what we all don't realize, is that because of their disobedience here, they are threatened not only by the sin that they've let stay, but also by God Himself. That's what God said back in Numbers when he first talked about this, in Numbers 33, 55, he said this, But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them whom you let remain will be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your side, and they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. If that's not enough, verse 56, And I will do to you as I thought to do to them. A scary verse. I wonder if they've read that one, you know, up to that point. Well, let's just let those people stay there. Dude, remember what he, what he told us. So with verse 15, though, what you see is it breaks it down into three different tribes that they actually allot, because the first section was a summary. So then we get a description of the three different tribes that are um, dispersed in detail. So starting in verse 15, it says this. Moses gave an inheritance to the tribe of the people of Reuben, according to their clans. So their territory was from Aurora, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and the city that is in the middle of the valley, and all the tableland of the Medeba, and with Heshbon and all its cities that are in the tableland, Dibon and Bamathbel and Bethbel Mion and Jehaz and Kedemoth and Mephath, and Kiriathem, yeah, we'll say that, and Sibmah, and Zerth Shahar on the hill of the valley, and Beth Peor, and the slopes of Pisgah, and Beth Sheshemoth, that is, all the cities of the tableland, and all the kingdom of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, who Moses defeated with the leaders of Midian, Evi, and Rechem, and Zur, and Hur, and Reba, and the princes of Sihon who lived in the land. Balaam also, the son of Beor, the one who practiced divination, was killed with the sword by the people of Israel among the rest of their slain. And the border of the people of Reuben was the Jordan as a boundary. This was the inheritance of the people of Reuben according to their clans with their cities and villages. First tribe. Second one. Moses gave an inheritance also to the tribe of Gad, to the people of Gad, according to their clans. Their territory was Jazer and all the cities of Gilead. 
and half the land of the Ammonites to Aror, which is east of Rabbah, and from Heshbon to Ramoth Mizpeh and Betanim, and from Mahanim to the territory of Debur, and the valley of Beth Haram, Beth Nimrah, Succoth, and Zaphon, and the rest of the kingdom of Sihon, king of Heshbon, having the Jordan as a boundary, to the lower end of the sea of Chinnereth, Kinnereth, sorry, eastward beyond the Jordan. This is the inheritance of the people of Gad, one of the sons of Jacob, according to their clans with their cities and villages. And finally, verse 29, Moses gave inheritance to the half-tribe of Manasseh, who was actually a son of Joseph, who has two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. It was allotted to the half-tribe of the people of Manasseh according to their clans. Their region extended from Mahanim through all Bashan and the whole kingdom of Og, of Og, king of Bashan, and all the towns of Jer, which are in Bashan, 60 cities, and half Gilead, and Ashtaroth, and Adriai, the cities of the kingdom of Og, and Bashan. These were allotted to the people of Makur and the son of Manasseh for the half of the people of Makur, according to their clans. So, you have God dividing, as he had through Moses, and now describing the particulars of three different sections of land. You can put that map up again, just leave it up. Three different sections of land for the three sons that initially came uh, before they crossed the Jordan up through the wilderness, and they defeated two kings in this area that owned most of the area, Sihon and Og. They described uh, Reuben, that goes from, you'll see, south, obviously, to north. Uh, Reuben, who was the first son uh, of Jacob, Gad, and Manasseh, who was one of the sons of Joseph. Now, As the portions are divided among these tribes, we learn a lot about portions. And first thing we learn is that the dividing of the land or the giving of the portions is not by chance and just random, you know, arm wrestling kind of feats of strength type of stuff and them competing for it. It is not by chance at all. What happens on the east side of the Jordan, it was done through Moses who divided it. And on the west side of the Jordan, we see not only did God give the land to Israel, But he later, we see in chapter 18, I believe, he divides it according to lots. Now, lots are controlled by God. So whatever falls, he divides the land into certain sections like this, and then whoever gets the sections is is decided by lots, which clearly God is the one who controls. Now, there were no mistakes in how the land was divided up. There were no boundary disputes, or there shouldn't have been. There was... No confusion about who was supposed to receive what. It was very, very clear that God had a section of land and God wanted these people to have land. That makes me very uncomfortable. You go, so what? Well, let me tell you. God assigns the portions and determines the lots for all of us. What you have or don't have, is what you're supposed to have or not have right now. That doesn't always make us comfortable. We have this, not only a culture of entitlement, but our own vision of how our kingdom's going to work itself out, and what it's going to look like, and God hasn't necessarily said that's how it's going to be. He is the one that gives the lots, He is the one that gives the portions. He is the one that gives the boundaries. He is the one that's put you in this place where you live, with the friends you have, in the job you're in. All those things have been given and apportioned by God. Now, some of us, maybe many of us, don't like 
our lot. All right? Come on, let's be honest. There are some days when you like your lot less, and some maybe you like it more. But the fact is, we can very easily become discontent in what believing, I should say, that God hasn't really given us what we think we deserve or what we're supposed to have. And those are the beginnings of unbelief. Those are the beginnings of unbelief. Mainly because we like the lots of, lots of other people. I like that guy's lot. I like that person's lot. I like that job. I like that home. I like whatever. Guess what that's called? Coveting. That's what that's called. It's called sin. And it gets worse when you begin to idolize whatever that thing is that you don't have that God has not given you to the point you begin to worship it and sacrifice to it your time, your loved ones, all kinds of things. That is idolatry. Some of us don't like, it's not even the stuff. Sometimes it's just the gifts that we've been given, the talents that we've been given, the experiences that we've been had. It is the material blessings, but it's all of it. And all of that has been given by God. All of that has been, God said, this is the shape of your lot. And maybe you haven't reached the boundary of what the, the lot is that you have yet, but right now, at least, that is what you have. I'm always, uh, I appreciate the book of Job. I don't think we appreciate the book of Job enough. Um, scholars say it's the oldest book of the Bible written. I had the privilege of teaching it in high school because it was accepted as AP literature. It's like, sweet. Book of Genesis, Book of Matthew, Book of Job. Went through Job. It was a struggle for these kids because they read it as just, you know, a story of a guy, and I read it as a guy. True story. And you got a guy who in the first chapter loses everything. Has everything and loses everything. And later loses even more because he thought, he, you know, Lost his kids, lost his wealth, lost his homes, and eventually lost his, even his, his health. But here's what he said when he lost all of it in the very beginning of the first chapter. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Do we realize that anything beyond naked is a blessing and undeserved and pure grace and even breathing naked, right, is a blessing? That's a clip that will be taken out at some point and given somewhere and and misunderstood. But (laughs) being naked is a blessing? Yes, it is. Um, We think about that. Naked is, you know, you're born, that's it. Anything other than that is a portion of God. And yet we're always like, you know, I want that. It's not what we've been given. At the same time, God's given us portions. We look at the pile they're laid out, and we do see that some of our portions, and this is difficult, are impacted by sin, in particular the sins of our fathers. What you see is uh, centuries before the land was divided, Jacob 
in, I think, Genesis 48, was dying. So the father of these 12 kids. And he uttered prophecies as he prayed over each of his sons before he died. His firstborn son was Reuben. And as he prayed over him, he condemned him. And he condemned him because, if you read back, he basically had sinned against his father by sleeping with one of his wives. And so the firstborn son, because of the fact he was firstborn, was entitled to a double portion of the blessing, of the inheritance. If you show that map again, you see that Reuben didn't get no double blessing. In fact, the double blessing ends up going to Joseph's sons, who gets a double blessing, one for Ephraim and one for Manasseh. So more than four centuries later, the punishment for Reuben's sinful deed is passed on to his descendants. And the right of the firstborn passes over and blesses his brother's kids, Joseph. So the portions are still distributed by God. He gives out what he gives out. And some of those sadly, have been infected by the, by the sins of those who came before us, by our parents and their parents. And at times, that actually plays out what we actually have, like the stuff. And honestly, other times, and I see this myself, it plays out in the kind of people that we are. Right? We inherit some pretty cruddy stuff sometimes from our parents. You ever had someone go, you know what, your father was just like that. That sounds like your grandfather. I mean, there's things there. Not all good things, many good things that affect who we are and what we have. Exodus 34, when God was put Moses in the cleft of the rock and came by and said, I'm going to declare my name to you, and he walks by and declares his name. We like to read the first half of the declaration of God's full name, but not necessarily the second half. And the first half says this, The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. So this is the name of the Lord, the character of the Lord, the heart of the Lord. It says, The Lord, the Lord, God saying his own name, a God merciful and gracious, love it, slow to anger, love it, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, Love it. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Yes. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Praise God, I got a lot of that. But, that's where we like to stop. Right? But, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity or the sin of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And we see that here. And so, the point is not to start analyzing all that you have, all that you are, and find your daddy wound back to blame for your situation. That's not what I'm saying. Instead of looking back, I would suggest maybe you look forward. And you think about how what you're doing and how powerful your own sin is to impact not just you, but generations to come. 
I am very sober to the reality of what I do, how I live, my faithfulness to God or lack thereof, how I model husbandry and fatherhood to my sons and my daughter, how I love my bride, how I work as a pastor, will impact not only my children, but their children and their children. Why? Because that's what God said would happen. And I think it works both ways. It's not just our sin, but it's our faithfulness. It's our faithfulness. So that's Reuben, from sins of our fathers. Then you get uh, Manasseh and Gad, and you have um, their portions that they aren't necessarily tainted by something specific like this bad sin that happened centuries ago, but maybe just by the stupidity of their fathers, right? Sin and stupidity aren't the same thing necessarily. Just because it's stupid doesn't mean it's sinful. Catch that? That's not very comforting to me because I've done a lot of stupid things that may not be sinful. That's comforting, but they still have consequences because they were dumb. Now, there are many things that I have done or will do as a father that may not spiritually impact my kids because of the sin, but could impact them because it was just a really bad decision. And what you have of these guys, if you read the accounts in Numbers 32, they defeat these kings, they're planning on going across the Jordan, and Manasseh and Gad and their tribes, right, they look and they go, ooh, this looks like some good land. Why do we need to go over there? They didn't pray, they didn't inquire to the Lord, they didn't think about it, they saw... Beautiful land. They saw how big their tribes were, and they're like, dude, let's take what's right in front of us. Now, it seemed like as Moses heard them go, they come up and they go, Moses, can we have this land instead? He's like, you are going to call hellfire down on all of us. And he gets really ticked at them because he thinks that they are actually thinking selfishly. And it seems like they probably were. And they said, no, 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 we'll come with you across the Jordan, but we want this land here. And so... That's what happens. But think about this. The request of these tribes to settle in what's called the Transjordan or the other side of the Jordan on the east may have not been the wisest decision. Why do you, why I say that? Well, as you read, um, it seems like it's, it's a pretty hasty decision but because the first thing they've conquered. But as a result, they are the most vulnerable of all the lands in all of Israel. Forever. They are the ones that actually are exposed constantly to invasion forever first. And when the Assyrian king, because there's no natural boundaries there, there's a boundary for the other side. You've got to get across the Jordan and these, and these seas. They've got time. They, got, you know, they can mobilize. Not happening here. So they're the most vulnerable. They're most exposed to enemies. And when the Assyrian king eventually looked over at Canaan and said, I want that. Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh were the first ones to be conquered and taken away. And so the account of Numbers 32, as you read it, it seems like they're making a decision for the security of their family. We have lots of children and our wives. Let's, let's have here. And what happens, unfortunately, because of the decision, is that their women and children are the ones exposed to danger first and more insecure than any other tribe there is. So some of the portions we have are the result, you know, guests given by God, some of it impacted by the sins of our fathers, 
And some have been impacted just by the stupidity of those who came before us, and we're paying some consequences because of that. That's reality. Still portioned out by God. But regardless of your portion, regardless of what you have or don't have, what God has given you, we see, though, in the final verses, this, this fitting summary taking us to what is most important. And it's, it's beautiful, as you see the divisions, he, this sets the stage for the rest of the chapters. And verse 32 says this, These are the inheritance that Moses distributed in the plains of Moab, beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho. But to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance, just as he said to them. Read that again. But to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance. They got no land. They got nothing. Later on you see they get cities in each part of the tribes. But they got no inheritance and that they still battle along with everyone else. You can imagine a little bit of bitterness they might be feeling. What? Where's our stuff? All right. Where's our stuff? Where's mine? Passage uh, ends with 33 by reminding Israel and everyone, including us who would read this record, that the land itself is really no more than dirt. It's God's dirt, as all the dirt in the world is but it's just dirt. The tribe of Levi, the ones chosen by God to be the priests in Israel to protect the law of God and its purity, they don't get an allotment of land. They get the cities later, but we're reminded, I think, through them of the true nature of the promise that applies to the church which is described as a priesthood of believers, that the promise is kept by God. The promise is kept by God, but the promise is actually the Lord Himself apart from the land. The Lord Himself represents the true inheritance, not what God is going to give us, though he gives us many things, it is, in fact, God himself. That is the gospel. It is not that you get land. It is not that you even get eternal life. It's that you get God and eternal life. The Levites didn't get a portion, if you will, that could be measured. They received a portion that was beyond measure. And sadly, I think, our sin so affects us that we are so overwhelmed and want more than anything to get our portion on this earth. We want, we've already laid out our boundaries, and that's all we can see. We get blinded by the horizontal world and forget 
where our true inheritance lies. And so this stuff in this world actually becomes incredibly important to us to the point where we worship it. We are so worried about our portion, or maybe we'll even make it sound better by saying, well, I'm just worried about the portion for my children. We covet what we don't have, and we worship what we think will make us happy apart from God himself. It's what we do. And we are all guilty of holding on, I think, to the land or the hope for land way too tightly. Way too tightly. And the place of true worship, the place that I believe the true Christian is supposed to reside, where the true church is supposed to be, is where the Bible describes the priesthood of believers with the attitude of Jesus who gave up everything, though he had everything, so that we could have everything, namely himself. He gave up health, wealth, power, fame, comfort, so that we could be with him. We are not promised squat diddly on this earth. That prosperity preaching is beep. That's what it is. Okay? It's what it is. We are not promised anything here. But we are, even while we're here, promised Jesus. And we're promised to be with Him face to face someday in the most amazing way. And I'd like to close with a challenging quote from a pastor that I appreciate. I don't want to even name him because he gets named too much, but I will. it's in my notes if you want to go see it. Here's what he said. I'll give you a hint. It's in his book called God is the Gospel. He said, The critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth, and all the food you ever liked, yeah, right? Think about how you think about heaven. And all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters. This is heaven. If you could have all those things, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? There's the question for all of us. Even if I lose my portion here, I still have God. Even if I lose, I have Jesus. Right? Even if I lose my respect, I have Jesus. Even if I lose my wealth, I have Jesus. Even if I lose my fame or my regard, I have Jesus. Even if I lose my job, I have Jesus. Even if I lose my health to the point of my life, I have Jesus. Even if I lose my family, even if I lose, I have Jesus. That's where we have to be. And until you are there, I'm not sure you believe the gospel or perhaps understand the gospel. 
The gospel is not to save you for your comfort here, though it is comforting to have the Spirit. It brings peace, it brings joy, it brings meeting. Ultimately, our home is somewhere else, and it's with Jesus. And I pray, I pray, I pray that we will not get distracted by the portions that we think we need or want in this world. And we'll understand our portion is reserved by Jesus waiting for us. And until we get there, we'll do everything we can to glorify him.